Hey friends, this episode of the Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of the Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Merlot University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. And I'm Dan. And once again, it's just us two, but we thought it would be fitting for the two of us to do an introduction today because we have a very special episode coming your way. It's a great thing for the holidays. Families getting together, telling horrible stories next to a warm, crackling fire. That's, that's what we have to look forward to today. Absolutely. And as Dan alluded to, Vivek actually got a chance to interview his very own brother for our prostate cancer series, this time focusing on the surgical management of prostate cancer. So this time, our discussion with our urology colleagues. And it just so happens that Vivek's brother is a urologist, and so the perfect guest for our show. So we are so excited to be joined by Dr. Sanjay Patel. He is an assistant professor of urology at the University of Oklahoma College of Medicine and OU Health Stevenson Cancer Center. And he's also their fellowship program director for the Urologic Oncology Program. So excited to have the Drs. Patel hosting today's show. And I hope you all enjoy a very Patel episode for the holiday season. All right. We're excited to have a guest episode here. So this is actually just me. And the guest on the episode today is my older brother, Dr. Sanjay Patel from University of Oklahoma Stevenson Cancer Center. He's a urologist there. So it actually worked out. We're doing the prostate cancer series. He's going to talk to us. And this is the first time that I get to pimp him because normally he'd always ask me all these garbage questions and I was a med student. Now the roles are reversed. So he's on the hook for this one. So the first thing we start out with these guest episodes is tell us a fun fact about yourself. Fun fact. I got lots of fun facts. I should say this. I have a very unique teaching style with my residents. And basically, if they get something wrong or don't do the right thing, I usually make them sing a song in the operating room on the robotic surgery microphone because they have a little microphone. So so it's really good. Sometimes I have them sing All Star and sometimes I have them sing Hold On by Wilson Phillips. It's just a lot of great fun. So it sounds like you're torturing your residents and trainees. So in medicine, what we do is we eat food at lunch and then all have a kumbaya together. This is just the difference between these two specialties. You know what I mean? Well, actually, this past Friday, I usually, Friday's my VA day. I usually cover the clinic, teach them vasectomy. Sometimes I'll do some robotic surgery. But uh, I usually get go go down to the VA canteen. It's tax-free, so I get some nice drinks. Usually I get $20, $30 worth of drinks, Cheetos, Doritos, snack food, Swedish fish, you name it. But this time I saw, and it's for the residents. I do a good job. I feed them that way. But then I also saw a gingerbread house, okay? So what you know what I did? Boom, got the gingerbread house, had them build it. My idea was I was going to smash it after they built it, like throw a book on it or something like that. But they were so excited making this gingerbread house and using teamwork and all that stuff that they do. I just let it be. But I was going to smash it, but I, I just couldn't do it. They're so happy. Again, this is why I didn't go into surgery. So I spent <laughs> a while with my older brother when I was an undergrad and in med school. I think in med school too, Sanjay, I'm pretty sure. But anyway, I spent time with him and I saw his lifestyle and I'm like, I'm not doing that. But here he is, he's a urologic oncologist, very successful, is the fellowship program director over there. So but so we don't give our listeners more time of us messing with each other. The other thing is he did pee in his pants and got himself home in the second grade all by himself. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that story before we get into the episode? Sure. I mean, I was basically not doing what you should do, okay? 
when you should pee frequently. Most physicians do not do that, right? You should probably go in the bathroom every couple hours, right? What do we do? Most healthcare providers hold it all day and just go once at the end of the day. Well, I knew I was probably going to be a, a physician, maybe, who knows? Probably not. I actually wasn't a good student but back then. But I decided to hold my pee all day and I was like, I need to go to the bathroom and they wouldn't let me. And so I continued to hold it and they still wouldn't let me. And I was like, you know what? I was like seven years old at the time. I was like, I can walk home. So I just left. I just left basically after repeating my pants. I could walk home, which is about a mile away, change into clothes. I actually walk home, break into the house that was locked usually, but I, maybe I thought I had a chance. Change into clothes, come back to school and no one would know the difference. Turns out I went home, the doors were locked, came back to school and school was over. So I had to go uh, find a way to the daycare and I did, but that's how it goes. That's what led to your life as a urologist. Ever since that moment, you were just like, I don't want this to happen to anybody else. But here we are. So you're a urologist. You deal with that kind of stuff. I deal with oncology. So, you know, we're, we're, we're in the care of cancer patients. But realistically, we both deal with that. So let's start off with the case today. So we have a 63-year-old male with a history of BPH who presented for his routine follow-up with his primary care doctor. He told the primary care guy that he had a brother with prostate cancer and had pursued PSA screening because of that. His PSA at this visit was elevated at 15. He felt well with stable, ongoing urinary frequency, so really no other symptoms. But given this concern for prostate cancer with this elevated PSA, he was referred to urology for further evaluation. So first question I have for you, when you get a patient, comes to your clinic, and they have an elevated PSA, usually referred probably by a primary care doctor, what are your next steps during the initial evaluation, and what would lead you down the path for a biopsy? I think that this is a very tricky thing to do. I think I try to spend a lot of time with my patients doing just this. And it's hard with all the constraints of medicine where you're like, get them in, get them out, churn and burn, which is what probably everybody want their practice managers, the administrators, whatever you want, you just want them in and out. But I think it does take a long time for this. And what it's really multifactorial. And I think ultimately, at the end of the day, the big key word is you have to have shared decision making with them. It's really a decision that you both make together. And I think that numerous things factor into it. The age, there's certain, I, I try to identify risk factors for prostate cancer. So older age is one, race, black race is one. If they have a family history of prostate cancer and a relative or someone who had metastatic prostate cancer, numerous uncles that had it, you name it, right? History of now we're finding out more and more over the last five to 10 years about breast cancer, ovarian cancer, and certain genetic mutations like BRCA and Lynch syndromes. So I like to get an idea about that just to kind of gauge how risky they are just in general. So if I've got a guy who's 85 years old and no risk factors for anything else, I don't know. I don't have much credence on it. If I got a 45, 50-year-old guy that's got three family members, including a father who died or had prostate cancer, particularly advanced prostate cancer, I'm more likely to say, hey, we should probably look into this and, and go to the next step, which is do a biopsy. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's really risk stratifying the patients, which is what we always do when we talk about treatment. But for you, you're, you're getting a sense of what's the risk of this person having it because you don't want to do an unnecessary biopsy. And there are patients you can follow and observe. So can you walk us through the steps for biopsy in these patients? And we always see these pathology reports talking about 12 cores. Can you can talk to us about this 12 core idea? Why do we get 12 cores? And we also see a lot of talk about there about whether to get an MRI or not. So what do you do in your practice and, and what's the role of an MRI in this setting? I, before I talk about the biopsy, one last thing is, is just life expectancy. I always, I always like to imagine, and I can't predict the future, no one can, but 
suppose the guidelines suggest if anyone has a life expectancy less than 10 years, you probably don't want to screen them. And like, I don't know, I'm not very good at doing that. I don't think any physician really is, but you can usually tell about that. So that's just the last thing I kind of size them up about life expectancy. But in terms of prostate biopsy, I mean, I think that anybody now in 2023, 2024, coming in the new year, I think it's standard of care to get an MRI of the prostate. When I was a resident, we didn't have MRIs. MRIs weren't good. We would just put our finger in their rectum, see if we felt a nodule, rely on the tip of your finger, which is crap. I don't think I can really get an accurate assessment of many things other than it's really, really, really bad or, I don't know, kind of squishy, medium squishy, really squishy. You can't really tell. And so I think that now it's standard of care is you get an MRI of their prostate. You have to have a special type of magnet, a three Tesla magnet, and you have to have a team of radiologists that are familiar with reading them because I think there's a lot of variability. And so shotgun, number one, always I'd get an MRI of their prostate and I would look for lesions and they have a scoring system for lesions. They call them PIRADS, P-I-R-A-D-S. It goes one to five. And so anything that's one or two, yeah, don't worry about it. Three is kind of equivocal, four or five pretty good likelihood that you have some clinically significant prostate cancer. And so I get an MRI first. And then based off that MRI, I bring the patient back and I have a discussion with them. I tell them, look, we have a lesion here. What we do is we usually will do two things. And there's a clinical trial, there's a new one, Journal of Medicine called the Precision Trial that showed that you have to do a 12-core biopsy, which is basically dividing the prostate into right and left sides and getting six samples from the left, six from the right, in a kind of systematic grid fashion focusing in on the peripheral zone, which is on the backside or posterior side of the prostate. And it's just kind of a systematic grid so that if there is something, you will hit it. And in addition to that, if the MRI shows a targetable lesion, a pyrads four or five lesions, then I would spend maybe a little two or three extra biopsies in that area to get a targeted biopsy. So at the end of the day, it would be a, at minimum, 12 core biopsy plus three, two to three targeted biopsies. If the MRI is negative, let's say it comes back and it says there's nothing there, it doesn't mean that they don't have prostate cancer, just you don't have a target to go after. And so in that case, if I had a high clinical suspicion they had prostate cancer, I would just do the standard 12-core biopsy, six from the right, six from the left. And when you're doing these biopsies, is it image-guided? What are you doing during that biopsy? So there are new systems out now that do MRI fusion biopsies where they basically take the image that you got in the MRI scanner and they try to register it to real-time imaging by fusing it with the ultrasound probe. And there's a machine there that will tell you, okay, hold your hand 12 degrees this way, you know, in this angle, and insert the needle three centimeters, and that's where your target is. So it'll help you identify it. But it all depends on the targeting of how well you line the images up. If you don't line them up properly, you're going to be really off. And so that's one way that we do, we call that fusion biopsy. And I think that most centers now, it's almost become standard of care. I think a lot of smaller practices can't afford to have one because it's very expensive, a big time commitment to do. So there's always all these mobile units that they have that they'll come to your surgery center and they'll you can set up 12 biopsies at a time. But I think that's the best kind of most standard of care. Now, if you don't have that, They've done studies looking at what we call cognitive fusion, which is look at the map, you look at the MRI, and you're like, it's right here in this area, and use the ultrasound probe to guide yourself to that area. And I think both are pretty, if you're good at looking at MRIs of the prostate, you can easily identify and see the lesion on the ultrasound and without the need of MRI fusion software, which is, and that's called cognitive fusion. And so I think I use a combination of the two. And in general, I don't think one way is wrong or better than the other. I think if you know how to use the software, use it. If you know how to 
do cognitive fusion, you can. And then the last thing I was going to say is there's been a real big shift. When I was a fellow, I wrote the prostate biopsy book chapter on how to do a prostate biopsy. It was transrectal. We went through the rectum, pushed the needle through the rectal mucosa, oftentimes introduced infection into the prostate, oftentimes, I wouldn't say oftentimes, but a small percentage of the time uh, created scenarios of urosepsis in these patients. And really, that was a lot of morbidity for it. Two, the patient was also awake, and they're in your clinic squirming around, and you're telling them to sit still, this and that, quite uncomfortable. Nowadays, I pretty much, and I think a lot of practices, especially academic practices, high-volume practices, do it in the operating room or in their clinic, transperineally, going through the skin in between the scrotum and the rectum. That affords you a better biopsy. You actually get a better biopsy of the posterior aspect of your prostate much, much, much better than you would transrectally. And you don't have that high risk of infection going through the rectal mucosa. And if you put them asleep in the operating room, the patient experience is way better. They're, you know, they're essentially asleep. So I think there's going to be a big shift. And even at our last uh, Society of Urologic Oncology meeting, lots and lots of papers and studies looking at how we should do transperineal biopsies versus transrectal ones and how it's not inferior and and oftentimes probably better to do it that way. That's pretty interesting because we read all these terms, at least from the Medonc side, at least for me, and I never, it's a black box because by the time we see them, it's usually biochemical recurrence metastatic, you know, totally different patient scenario. So let's go back to our patient. He got an MRI, subsequent biopsy showed prostate adenocarcinoma. His pathology was notable for a Gleason 4 plus 3 in six out of 12 cores. He had T2C disease, which really means that more than 50% of the prostate was involved and he did not have extra prostatic extension. So listeners, go back to our prior episode if you want to know a little bit about how we risk stratify these patients and we'll include more in our show notes. But let's just move on just for a conversation's sake. And let's say that we have this guy, he's got unfavorable intermediate prostate cancer because he's got PSA that's 15 between 10 and 20, greater than 20 is high risk, less than 10 is lower risk. He's got the Gleason 4 plus 3 pattern equals 7 in 6 out of his 12 cores, and he's got 50% of his prostate involved. So that puts him in this unfavorable intermediate risk group. So we'll get to low risk and high risk later in this episode, but let's say a patient comes to your clinic, you had done this biopsy, and they have intermediate risk disease. And let's say it was favorable or unfavorable, just intermediate risk disease. How do you proceed with staging imaging? Are you getting a PSMA PET on all of these patients? Do you get a PSMA PET on low-risk patients? How do you deal with staging imaging? Well, you know, I think that the guidelines have some some importance. I mean, ultimately, the question is, do you think that this patient with intermediate risk prostate cancer has metastatic disease or not? Because, you know, are they a candidate for a localized treatment or not? Back before we had PSMA PET scans, we would try to risk stratify them and oftentimes get a bone scan and a CAT scan. And we typically do it in patients that had more aggressive disease features. And so if you have an intermediate risk prostate cancer patient, we subdivide them into favorable and unfavorable. If it's favorable risk, I usually do not get any imaging on them and typically offer them treatment. You could even potentially offer them active surveillance. If they have unfavorable intermediate risk, then imaging is indicated. And typically, then if you look at guidelines, AUA, NCCN guidelines, they recommend getting some type of bone imaging and some type of cross-sectional imaging. So we used to traditionally get CT scans and bone scans. And I think now with PSMA PET scans, it can look at both bone and soft tissue. And so therefore, I think that I tend to prefer PSMA PET scans. We have it pretty readily available at our institution. There's a lot of private centers that are have options for that as well. And so for unfavorable in your intermediate risk, I just, I get a PSMA PET scan. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We're getting better sensitivity of these scans. If we want to go through localized treatment, we want to rule out metastatic disease and unfavorable intermediate is that cutoff. So that's good to know. So for this patient, this patient comes into your clinic. He's got unfavorable intermediate risk disease. He did the PSMA PET scan. He doesn't have any evidence of metastatic disease. Now he's coming to you and he's saying, hey, doc, should I get this thing cut out? What would you do? What would you do for your dad? How do you counsel that patient? How do you go through the options of localized treatment and really focus more on the prostatectomy side of these things? How do you talk to patients about that? I think that someone that needs treatment, and this is certainly a patient that would warrant treatment, they've got unfavorable intermediate risk prostate cancer without any evidence of any metastatic disease on PSMA PET, then yeah, the goal is to treat it locally. I always tell people that there's really no head-to-head randomized trials. It'd be unethical to perform something like this anywhere. Make men walk through door number one and two, and they end up on radiation or surgery. It's very, very hard to even conduct a trial like that, right? So there's always going to be some element of bias. And so I look at various things. One, I look at tolerability of surgery. If they've had they're a poor surgical candidate, if they have breathing issues, respiratory issues, if they've got multiple abdominal operations, then I'll steer them away from that and say, hey, probably recommend radiation, not surgery. I look at their urinary symptoms. And so a lot of people tend to just overlook them. But if you have a patient who's got very irritative urinary symptoms, and by irritative, I mean frequency, urgency, urgent continence, I got to go, I got to go get out of my way, I got to pee, or then they end up leaking on themselves on the way in there radiation to that area is just going to really piss it off a lot and anger it, and they're going to have worsening of those symptoms. Also, patients who have obstructive urinary symptoms, and those are, you got to push real hard to get it out, or intermittency where they pee, and stop, go, stop, go, stop, go, post-void dribbling. People with an obstructive component because their prostate is so large that they can't empty their bladder, oftentimes I'd recommend surgery on those patients because that would fix the problem of their obstruction, and at the same time, take care of their prostate cancer. So those are certainly some of the things I look at. The MRI, I think, is very, very useful in the sense that before we would just go into kind of blind, like you couldn't really get high-definition images of the anatomy around the prostate and the bladder. But now you can tell if there's extra prosthetic extension, if it's invading the bladder neck, if it's extending into the rectum. Those are things that we would just find out on the fly intraoperatively, and it can really make it quite challenging to do the operation. And so if I know I have a patient that has extension outside of their prostate on one side or it's growing into the bladder, boy, I don't want to be operating on them because I'm going to leave some of the cancer behind and they're going to need radiation anyway. And so I was like, why not just do the radiation? And then I also size, you know, some people, it's a psychological thing. They just want it out of their body. They're like, I don't care what I want it out, get it out of me. And so I'll take it out and, you know, do a lymph node dissection potentially if they qualify for it. Some people are freaked out by surgery. It just scares them. They're, they don't want to have it. They do radiation. Some people, it's as simple as, I don't want to wear a Foley catheter, catheter through the penis after surgery, which we usually leave in for seven to 10 days to allow things to heal. They don't want to have it. Easy. They do radiation. And then the other thing is hormone shot. If you have unfavorable intermediate risk, you also have to have four to six months of hormonal therapy with it. So a lot of people are against that. And then the other thing is quality of life. We look at two big outcomes when it comes to prostatectomy outside of the you know hard outcomes of cancer and cancer survival and things like that. We look at urinary incontinence. Urinary incontinence is very, very common after prostatectomy. It used to be extremely common because when we did open prostatectomies, it was a very, the reconstruction of everything wasn't really the most exact. I think with robotics, we have increased precision. And I think now most people have pretty good outcomes with incontinence, but you certainly can have urinary issues involving incontinence. And I always tell men after surgery is done, you're going to leak 100% of the time until you do these Kegel exercises and recover. 
And the goal is to get you to zero pads a day or maybe one pad a day of leakage of incontinence. But there are some men that have three pads a day, four or five pads a day. They have to wear a diaper. I mean, that's a big deal for a lot of these men. And so certainly, um, certainly a big issue for them. And, and I think that that's one of the big things that we look at. You do not get that incontinence with radiation. You just get irritative voiding symptoms, worsening of frequency, urgency with the radiation. So I think that's another thing I look at. And then lastly is erectile dysfunction. The nerves that control erections are located around the periprosthetic nerve bundle, which is just basically a, t- a series of fibers and tissue around the prostate. And we do our best to spare those nerves, realizing that even if you do the best nerve sparing possible, you'll still have some element of erectile dysfunction afterwards. And I think that erectile dysfunction happens right then and there immediately after surgery versus with radiation. It can take about two, three years, four years to develop. And after that, they're about the same, the erectile dysfunction. Surgery just happens right then and there. Radiation progressively worsens until they are about roughly about the same after you know two, three, four, five years, something like that. So it's a very multifactorial decision. It's very, very patient specific. And oftentimes it's who they know. Like I knew this guy and he said that he was leaking like a sieve afterwards. I'm not doing it. And then another guy had radiation and it just put a hole between the rectum and his prostate. He's has pee coming out of his rectum, right? So it's all about who you know and who you talk to and who's in your kind of local circle. And then the last thing is the timing. Surgery is you come in, you get your procedure done about three, four hours or total ordeal. Some centers send them out early and that same day I send them home. The next day, usually I want to make sure they're doing okay. So it's at least 12 to 24 hours in the hospital at least. And then a catheter for seven to 10 days versus radiation is typically, typically Monday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, five days a week for, you know, maybe up to six to eight weeks, depending on how they fractionate the, the radiation. So it could be a long day at the beach. And so a lot of people have live out far, far away in rural parts of, you know, where I live in Oklahoma, and they just literally can't make it to a radiation center daily for these treatments. So I think that that's a lot of things that you discuss. And then ultimately in follow-up, some people, I have, when I was in Tennessee, we had a bunch of engineers that came in from Oak Ridge where, you know, they made the atomic bomb and all that kind of stuff. These engineers, they're very precise. They want numbers. After surgery, if you have a prostatectomy, your PSA will go to undetectable, less than 0.14, less than 0.1, whatever you define as undetectable. And as long as it stays undetectable, they're good. And that's a very clear binary number. It's either zero or one, either don't have it or you do have it. And people want that reassurance. And so I think a lot of the engineering types or the people with that mindset want to have that reliability. The follow-up after radiation, your PSA is going to go to a sum number. I don't know what. It'll nadir. It might go from, in this case, this patient's PSA, what was it? It was 15, maybe. It'll go 15. It might go to 1. It might go to 1.3. might go to 3. And it can bounce up and down. And they define failure or biochemical recurrence after radiation as nadir plus 2. So if it goes to 1, then you'll be following it, and it's 1.5, and it freaks the patient out. But technically, that's still fine. I mean, technically, failure is 3. And so it's that lack of reassurance, I think, that gets some patients. And then the other thing is if you do radiation first, it's real tricky to do surgery later. Tissue planes are adherent to each other. Your risk of erectile dysfunction is 100%. Your risk of incontinence, severe incontinence is probably, I quote people at 25%, because your tissues won't heal properly. Your sphincter is probably fixed. And so doing a salvage prostatectomy, meaning a prostate removal after radiation, risks are very high. 
And there's about a two three percent risk of rectal injury, which might require temporary permanent or permanent colostomy. If you do surgery and you need radiation on the back end, it's a little bit easier to do it because I mean you're not cutting anything out; you just radiate on the back end, so you kind of save that in the back pocket if you need it. And so. Obviously, that's my take on it. I'm a surgeon, and I try to be as objective as I can, but we all have implicit biases on things. If you hear a radiation oncologist talk about it, they'll probably say something different, maybe more favoring radiation. But that's usually what I try to offer them. And for me, I have no skin in the game. There's a lot of financial interest out there. If you own your radiation center, hey, radiation is real easy. Just go to the machine, and a lot of these urologists or groups, just you earn passive money through the by owning the radiation center. So there's a financial incentive to do it. And then if you don't own a radiation center and you're on a eat what you kill model or, you know, RVU model or production model, as a surgeon, you want a procedure. And it all depends on how how busy or how not busy you are in terms of surgery openings on what you will bias the patient to do. You know, so I try to be very objective. I mean, for me, I don't care what they do as long as they're happy with it. I'm happy to shepherd them through it. But I'm in a unique, you know, unique situation in my practice and we don't really have any of those incentives. That's fairly interesting because we're going to have a radiation oncologist on in another episode. And I think there is a lot to be discussed with these patients and really giving them the option, laying all these things out there, encouraging them to get all of the information and knowing that, hey, there is this urinary incontinence issue with the prostatectomy, but there's a lot of other advantages to it, right, that you had just mentioned. You get the PSA that's undetectable. You get a binary answer. It's there or it isn't. And that can be very reassuring for patients, which can be hard after something like radiation and thinking about irritated avoiding symptoms and all the patient selection criteria that you just talked about. So you briefly mentioned a pelvic lymph node dissection. When are you proceeding with that in a patient with a prostate? So that's a good question. We used to do it all the time for everybody. That was early, early, early. I'm talking about 20, 25 years ago. You're in there, you just do it. I think that we've gone to more of a risk-adapted approach, and there's numerous nomograms and calculators out there, and that's usually what we employ, and everyone's got one. There's probably like four or five different ones, but more or Center in Cleveland Clinic. You name the, some famous urologist that named it after himself, et cetera. So you punch in the numbers of some clinical factors, such as the patient's age, how many cores they had positive, what's their primary Gleason score, was there any extra prosthetic extension, various things like that. And it'll spit out a number of pretest probability. Here's the probability that they might have node positive disease. And typically the threshold varies. And some of them, anything above two to 7%, we would do a lymph node. And that's kind of a rough rule of thumb. If you look at the guidelines, I think that that's what they kind of came to the conclusion. That if you have a as low as 2%. If there's a 2% risk, you could have it in those nodes, we'll take them out. The lymph nodes that we remove are located on the external iliac artery, which is, you know, the one of the main the main blood supplies to the leg. And there's a certain packet of tissue, just a fatty tissue that contains these nodes that we remove and we have certain landmarks on them. Most of the time, most people don't have really much of any morbidity from it. Very serious things can happen. You could damage the external iliac artery or vein. Usually it's super uncommon that that happens less than a fraction of a percent of the time. There's a nerve called the obturator nerve, which is what makes your legs go inward, a deduction, adduction. Like if you ride a horse, that's what you would use to stay onto the horse. And some people can have injury to that. Again, I would, I'd quote you a fraction of a percent in large series. But lymphocytes are common. That's lymphatic leaks. There are lymph channels from your legs and you can develop a fluid collection that can sometimes become infected or become enlarged and causing pain. And I would say that probably symptomatic ones that need drainage are a couple percentage, two, three percent of the time. 
some people, and I don't think we have really good long-term studies looking at this because people aren't really so forthcoming with this on self-reported results, or, you know, on self-reporting this, but they develop lymphedema to some degree, and they can because you're blocking some of the lymphatic channels that carry the lymph fluid from your legs back, you know, back up to your heart and stuff. And so you can develop lymphedema. It's not really common, and the packet that we remove is, is pretty small. It's not a very involved lymph node dissection, I think, like sometimes you think of patients who get sentinel lymph nodes removed for breast cancer, I mean, they really can have some pretty good, a good amount of upper extremity swelling. I don't think it's as common as that for prostatectomy, but certainly something to consider whenever we do lymph nodes for prostate cancer. So that makes a lot of sense. You're, you're using a risk calculator, and we'll, we'll link some of those in our show notes to really guide your decision when to proceed with this pelvic lymph node dissection based on the patient's risk. So let's switch up the case now. So unfavorable intermediate, you got to do something, whether that's prostatectomy or radiation, you got to do something. Let's go to these patients who have low risk disease or favorable intermediate risk disease. And again, for our listeners, just go back to our intro episode or check out our show notes for more categorization on these patients. So let's say now you've got low to intermediate risk patient, favorable intermediate risk or low risk. How do you counsel them on active surveillance? And can you tell us what is active surveillance? So- when I was a resident, this was in the early 2000s, anyone that came in with prostate cancer anywhere, we would just remove because you hear the word cancer, you're like, I got to get it out. And so you would have people that had the smallest amount of cancer in it, meaning that they did a 12-core biopsy on of one of the 12 cores had cancer in it. Of that one core, and it's a little sliver of tissue that ranges from 12 to 15 millimeters in length, right? The length of the needle that we use to get the specimen. It's a little thin, little strand. Of that one core, maybe 0.5 millimeters of it had cancer in it. So we're talking about, I sampled it well, 12 spots. Only one of them had it. Of that one, it was a little speck on it, nothing crazy. We would remove that prostate. That's what we did. It came out. And we continuously did that for years and years and years. So basically, we would just essentially remove a lot of low-risk disease, which nowadays we often wouldn't even do at all. So what happened over time is some a lot of people started studying active surveillance, which is actively following this cancer. And so what people did was they said, listen, if you had the lowest risk cancer, which is a Gleason score six, Grade group one is what we call it now. And we would follow them and we'd say, look, you have this. I'm going to follow you very closely. Every three to six months, we'll get a PSA, do a digital rectal exam. I'm going to get a confirmatory biopsy on you within six to 12 months to really make sure that I know what you have is really your low risk. Just resample them. And if they met all those criteria and the patient psychologically was cool with it, like, hey, you want to watch your cancer? And they're like, yeah, I want to watch my You have to be in the right mindset then they followed these guys. And early on, we didn't really know as a field how often you biopsy them. So in order to not cause harm to anybody, we biopsied everybody mandatorily every year. So you had guys, four years, four biopsies, 10 years being followed. That's 10 biopsies through the rectum. And so you have to be also willing to undergo that. And as a result of that, they studied a lot. I and mean, Clots out of SUNY Brook in Canada has a huge series published in JCO probably in the early mid-2000s which basically showed that really no one died of prostate cancer. And you save so much morbidity by them not undergoing radiation and surgery that pretty much now, if you look at the guidelines, anybody who has lower risk prostate cancer, almost standard, the, the thing that is most likely recommended is active surveillance. And that's what I routinely do too. Any patient that comes in with a Gleason score six, low risk type prostate cancer, 
I just default them to active surveillance. And what is active surveillance to me? And it varies. The guidelines are a little loose on it. But typically, in general, you would get a confirmatory biopsy within six to 12 months to make sure you truly have low-risk prostate cancer. So it buys you another biopsy. If you hate biopsies, don't do it. Just get, you know, but, but you have to get that done. And then I would follow you uh, probably every six months initially, space it out to 12 months with PSAs. And I would probably get another MRI to evaluate your prostate probably three years down the road. Now, assuming that everything is staying stable. And so obviously, if the PSA starts going up in year one or year two, I've noticed an uptick of PSA goes from four to eight to 12. I'm going to investigate it sooner. But as long as everything is stable and nothing is misbehaving, I'll get another MRI in three years. If it looks okay, I'll watch it. If the patient and I decide, hey, look, let's check in again, I'll do another biopsy. So it's going to be another biopsy at some point down the road. Not yearly like they were doing before when they're trying to establish active surveillance, but at some point down the road. The other thing that's nice about MRI, if they had a targetable lesion in the beginning, and if that lesion correlated with where you found the cancer, you kind of have a picture that can guide you going forward. So if I know that they had a the right peripheral zone and the apex slash peripheral zone area had cancer in it, I'll just get another MRI on them and make sure that that lesion didn't grow in size, knowing that I have that correlative data. Now, not everybody will correlate like that. MRI is not perfect, and it sometimes doesn't show anything. But in those patients, I tend to follow with MRIs. And so I've got some people that, and it's, again, it's a shared decision-making thing. They have PSAs of four, four or five, really low. For five, six years, they've been four or five. I just get an MRI and I'm in between and they're like, I feel pretty good about it. I don't want to get anything. I watch them. If you got a nervous patient, again, shared decision-making. It's not wrong to check frequently. And so they might want to check in in two to three years just for peace of mind so they can sleep at night. So I think that that's what it entails. But I think it's pretty much almost standard of care now for anybody with low-risk prostate cancer, a disease that we would have 10, 15 years ago removed or radiated. That's a good thing to know. And for me, as a medical oncologist, you know, I was thinking, okay, these guys are getting yearly biopsies. I mean, that's, I would be like, no, I'm not going to get a yearly biopsy. So it's good that in your practice, and I think a lot of people do this, is that you can individualize this decision to the patient. We have these newer modalities like MRI, which really helps you and you can have something to follow on this advanced <laughs> And I think that's really, really important. So let's jump now to the last topic for today's discussion, and let's talk about patients who are of high-risk disease. So we're talking about these patients who have PSAs greater than 20, maybe these you know combined Gleason's 8 or more. Patients maybe got the MRI and they have extra prostatic extension. These are the patients that have high-risk disease, and then we also have very high-risk disease. And again, you can check out those criteria on your own. But let's talk about patients with high-risk and very high-risk localized prostate cancer. As a surgeon, which of these patients would you say, hey, actually, radiation might be a better option? I think you already sort of answered that with invasion to the bladder and the rectum, making it a good surgical operation. So who would you refer to radiation? And the second question is, if they have nodal positivity on staging imaging, are you still going to proceed with the operation? Or would you tell them, hey, think about actually going more towards radiation with something like Abipred, which we'll talk about in our systemic therapy episodes? Before all these other oral therapies that we have now and and all this stampede and, and all these just numerous drugs that have come out in the market probably since 2014, 15, prior to that, if you had a guy and I was a resident, a fellow there, if you had someone with very high, high risk disease features that, oh my gosh, if I get in there and try to operate on them, I'm going to leave tumor behind. I'm going to put a hole in the rectum. I'm not going to be able to reconstruct their bladder because I'm sowing cancer to cancer. When I remove the prostate, 
the urethra and the bladder where I essentially hook them together, both have cancer on them. It's just going to fail. You're not going to have a good outcome, right? So why even mess with it? And so I think that those patients, we would typically tend to radiate because why would I do surgery first knowing that I'm going to have to probably most likely clean it up with radiation on the back end, right? Now, there are some exceptions to this rule, and I think that we have MRIs now that we can really get a better idea. 15 years ago, if I had a high, high high-risk patient that I was like, man, we should just radiate him, I would get an MRI on him, and I I could see the tissue planes, and I could see where the cancer was, and was it in, you know, was it oozing out of the prostate into the rectum or the sidewall or not, I can make a better decision on if I could surgically remove this thing or not. And so I think that in general, you're safe to say that I'm going to give that patient with high risk features radiation plus 18 months to three years of hormonal therapy. If they have really, really, really high risk features, like it's invading into the outside the prostate, into the bladder neck, their PSA is high. I think above 40 is what they used in the Stampede trial. But if they had really, really high risk features, I would do the, I would just add on abiraterone for two years, you know, so you get radiation, abiraterone, prednisone, as well as uh, standard androgen deprivation through whether it's Lupron or Orgavix or whatever you decide. But that's what I would do on, in that patient. Now, there are caveats to that. I mean, would I operate on someone that's individualized, like we, like we had mentioned before? If I had a guy who was 45 years old, young, healthy, I got an MRI on him, and it showed that, hey, it was it was it wasn't out of control then i would just do the max debulking i'd debulk everything that i could i'd do a very wide local wide lymph node dissection even go a little bit higher be very very aggressive about it if it was involving a lymph node or or or, or not and then i would see what their psa does and if it's undetectable great we win if it's not then i would radiate them and give them most likely abiraterone on the back end so i think that if you want to do a Hail Mary, essentially, and if I was a young patient and I had my whole life ahead of me and I had, I think, localized prostate cancer and I could do radiation plus this you know, hormonal therapy or take it out and maybe do the radiation plus that hormonal therapy on the back end if I needed it, sometimes you can make that argument. Now, do I have any data based off of that? No. And really, I think you have to individualize it to the patient. Sometimes, and going back to this whole PSMA PET scan, we didn't have all this fancy imaging three, four years ago, right? And oftentimes, we would rely on a CAT scan. Is, it, is the lesion lymph node bigger than my thumbnail, right? Is it bigger than a centimeter in the short axis? That's how we were making all our decisions. There's not lots of people who have metastatic disease that's a three millimeter focus. There's lots of people that you get a scan, it looks fine. And you get in the operating room, you got a four, you know, three, four centimeter node. You can't really tell, right? But PSMA PET, I think, allows us to identify some of these lesions. And I think we're finding more and more people that we would have operated on, we opt out of it because they have disease that's elsewhere, like in their bone or in their higher up in their abdomen in their retroperitoneum. No brainer, I wouldn't operate on them. But what happens if you get that guy who's got high risk prostate cancer, PSMA PET scan with a solitary lymph node on his external iliac chain, that in theory, it's either one of two things. It's either the canary in the coal mine and it's it, we see it there. It's probably microscopically elsewhere. And hey, we shouldn't try to surgically remove it like Halsteadian style. Like if I just get one more node, if I just go a little bit more, if I just go get another packet of nodes, I'll cure this patient. It could be the canary in the coal mine, or it could be that's the only spot it went to. Let me get it out of there and see what happens. And I've had patients that we have done that on and they're undetectable, never needed any adjuvant treatment. They had, or we pull out lymph nodes out of them when we do a lymph node dissection because they had a a pre-test probability that was pretty high of having positive cancer. 
and we pulled out some nodes and their PSA has remained undetectable for many, many years, you add that's a pretty aggressive patient. And in that scenario, it wasn't the canary in the coal mine indicating it's elsewhere. It was literally just just jumped off the, you know, into the first lily pad and we took that lily pad out and it's gone. I think that in a younger patient, I would tend to be more aggressive, 45, 50-year-old person, someone who got screened because family history of prostate cancer or whatever led them to screening, and they got bad features their whole life ahead of them, let's go for it. If you, if it was like a 75, 70-year-old guy, comorbid conditions, you name it, I'd probably just offer them radiation, right? So I think that for me, that's how I personally individualize them. And I think that you're going to get a lot of varying opinions on what do you do in that patient with PSMA positive pelvic lymph nodes, not retroperitoneal, not in the liver, not in bones elsewhere, but just one spot? Do you go for the gold and kill it, hoping that it didn't go anywhere else? Or is that just an, an indicator that's a canary in the coal mine that it's, you know, it's probably elsewhere, just, you're just doing surgery for no reason? Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. And that was the last point of the discussion that I wanted to go through today is that for these high-risk, very high-risk patients, there is a subset of them that it would still be reasonable to proceed with surgery. There's the risk benefits. This is a data-free zone, realistically, right? We're not running some trial that says operation versus no operation. And like you were saying, which I think is really telling, is that you can have this patient, you can operate on them, and you still have radiation in your back pocket. You still have something like abiraterone and prednisone if you chose to do that in your back pocket. And it could be a long game for many of these patients. Maybe doing the surgery up front, if you deem them a good surgical candidate, they could tolerate it, things would go well, then look, you got this all, all this other stuff in your back pocket, and maybe you cured a ton of these patients. You didn't need to put them through both radiation and systemic therapy with something like abroad and prednisone, which we view lightly, but still has a major effect on patient quality of life. So very interesting to hear your thoughts on that. So that's all I've got for this episode. I hope everybody enjoys what we had here today. So this is my older brother. I got to grill him today, which was good. He could have been a little bit more prepared. So I'll give you a B minus on this, but Sanjay- hey, I'll take it. Listen, it's not even me. It's chat yeah. GPT, okay? It's all, I'm, a, I'm actually a bot, okay? I'm not true. even real. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Nobody will know. Any closing thoughts <laughs> for the listeners today? With prostatectomy and stuff, you know, I think certainly big things to look at are quality of life for these patients. And a lot for a lot of men, erectile dysfunction is a big talking. It's a big thing. You'd be surprised at how many people are really powered by the loss of that and how it really can dictate their decision making because that's a huge part of their lives. Similarly with incontinence. I mean, it's a, it's a big deal if you leak urine or if you cough and you bear down. And I think it, it makes a lot of men have this perception of, the, the, of themselves as being quote unquote macho or whatever. You really essentially are taking it away from them. And having incontinence is not fun either. Even if it's you cure them of their cancer or whatever, you know, what you do a prostatectomy on them for whatever the indication was, and they're leaking like a sieve all the time boy, did you really do good work on them? Is that something good at the end of the day? I mean, Vivek, like how many times have you peed in your pants over the last three decades? I'd say probably at least six, seven. Yeah, it doesn't feel yeah, I'd good. Say four. I'd say four, four times. Four times. And it probably doesn't feel good. And then when you have your fecal incontinence, it gets a little mushy back there. So I think that nobody likes that. Nobody likes fecal incontinence. Nobody likes urinary incontinence. And I think that we really don't put enough weight into that. So I would say you have more of a baker's dozen number of urinary leakage episodes. All right. We'll, we'll see. Not- I used to do your laundry when you were younger, and I think a lot of them were, were soaked in pee. Just hey, being honest. 
may have been a couple skid marks, but anyway, that, that, that's what we'll leave our listeners today. So, so remember patient selection is key. These are real side effects these patients are dealing with. This is a difficult conversation that urologists are having with these patients, radiation oncology doctors are having with these patients. And it's good to know from a medical oncology perspective, how these other specialties care for patients with localized prostate cancer. Thanks again for being on the show. And that's a wrap for today. So we'll see everybody next time. We'll be talking about systemic therapy and episodes of radiation oncology throughout the rest of the series. Everybody have a good day.